This is a CNA podcast. ร่างสมพรของหนูอ่ะหนูคิดถึงเขามากเราจะตรงเป็นลูกคนนี้เลย I have a confession to make. This episode was really tough to put together. What you heard there was a mother. She just lost her child in the Thailand preschool murders, and you don't need to understand what she was saying to hear the aching in her voice. 37 people, including 22 children, were killed during the three-hour rampage. The attacker later killed his girlfriend, her son, and himself. Being a journalist for 15 years, I've learned to keep headlines out of my heart. Just report the facts. But this one was different. I'm a young mother. I have a daughter the same age as many of those who were massacred in that Thai preschool. She takes afternoon naps, just like those children who are inside that single-story pastel pink building. That afternoon, under a bright blue sky, a man armed with a large knife and a gun entered and ended their lives as they slept. This one really hit me and my colleagues hard. Hello and welcome to CNA Correspondent. I'm your host Teresa Tang. This is the podcast where our network of correspondents shine a light on stories from wherever they are in the world, bringing you behind and beyond the headlines. I've only had to sit behind my computer to put this podcast together, but our Indochina correspondent Mei Wang, her assistant, and her cameraman were on the ground soon after the story broke. Have you ever wondered how challenging it is to cover tragedy? She's going to tell us. May, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. You are a seasoned journalist, but sadly, stories involving misery and misfortune are not unfamiliar. Talk me through how this story was different. You saw the breaking news alert. What went through your mind? This story was extremely different because it involved children. It involved a childcare center. Obviously, when it happened, the information was really slow in coming in because it happened in a different province. I'm based here in Bangkok. That incident happened in a different province, about eight hours drive by road. So think about the fact that it is going to be slow in terms of getting all the details, but slowly, surely. All the information started to trickle in, and that's when the numbers, in terms of the victims, started to climb very, very quickly. And obviously, because it involved children at such a large number, that really set the alarm bells ringing. And obviously, the journalism instinct kicked in to say, "Hang on a second, this is going to be big, and I have to be there for it." So we scrambled very quickly to find out how to get to that site. What was the fastest way to get there? What were the possibilities of getting there? As opposed to by road, it was eight hours. So we decided to look for flights, and after that, it was not as easy. It's not the fact that you land and then that's it. You have to get to the airport, land, and then take a two-hour drive or a one-hour drive to the actual site. As more details emerged, so did more images of where this took place. And for me, when I saw the outside of the nursery for the first time. 
I was struck by the shoe rack, of all things. If you look just outside the entrance of the preschool, there is a cube shoe rack, rainbow-colored cubbies, and you can see small pairs of shoes belonging to the children who are inside. And they look like something that my own daughter would wear, which was why that image was so poignant and has stayed with me. What image struck you and your crew, given it was the first time that some of them had covered such a traumatic event? I think at that moment, you don't really want to let anything affect you professionally simply because you're there to do a job. Yes, you have to be very sensitive about it, but you can't think too much about it as well because you need to be there to gather the facts. What are the details of the story? What happened? Is the gunman still around? Where are the parents? Where are the bodies of the victims? That's when you really have to get down to the A to Bs to Cs to figure out exactly how are you going to tell the story, what is important here, and not to be clouded by your emotions, to be honest with you. Obviously, later on, when you have a moment to take a look around and look at the shoe racks, as you mentioned earlier, and the little shoes that were left behind, because we're not allowed to go into the childcare centre, it was cordoned off. But outside as well, when I arrived there on Thursday evening, on the day of the shooting, there was a small little table with mini chairs that are set up outside in a courtyard. So obviously you can just imagine that that would be a place where the kids would go and sit down when they get there in the morning, perhaps have breakfast outside as well, or when they have a yard time during their playtime to be seated outside. So these are images that are very difficult to just cast aside, but unfortunately, as part of the job you need to do. More importantly as well, when you get to that location, I noticed how quiet it was, how calm it was at that moment, because by the time we got there, it was pretty late at night. The bodies had been removed from the childcare centre, and it was headed to the forensics for autopsies to be done. We didn't go there. We stuck at the childcare centre because we figured that that would be the command centre. And true enough, that's where all the officials were gathered. They had set up a command centre to coordinate efforts and to coordinate information. Over there as well, I got a chance to speak to some of the officials who actually work in that municipal office. I spoke to some of them and obviously it was tough to even approach them simply because a lot of them were in a daze. They were just sitting there trying to, I guess, compose themselves. And also you can tell that they've been crying for hours because their eyes were all red. They look exhausted. And I didn't want to go ahead and trigger another round of emotions for them. But again, I had to do my job. I had to ask the difficult questions. One skill that you have honed throughout your career is fact gathering. But a story like this really requires you to go beyond that. As you say, you had to approach officials, you had to approach grieving family members who arguably just experienced the worst day of their lives. How do you go about approaching these families? It's never an easy task. and I've done a lot of horrific stories. I've covered plane crashes. I've seen dead bodies, dismembered bodies, rotting corpses. I've seen all of that. But this one really, really strikes a chord simply because it involves children. And not just one or two, but we're talking about more than 20 young ones between the ages of two and five. So it tugs at your heartstrings for the fact that all these children think about what they were going through, think about how scared they could possibly have been 
And obviously approaching parents, grandparents, uncles, aunties was a very, very difficult job because a lot of them, by the next morning, they had gathered back at the command center after they had left the hospital because they could no longer see the bodies. They had to go through autopsies. And so when the parents were gathered at the command center just in front of the childcare center, it was just a hall of weeping, sobbing. You could hear it echo throughout this entire open air hall. And how do you even think about approaching anyone? So obviously you had to compose yourself, stand to the sidelines and watch and see when might be a good time to just slowly move forward. When might be a good time to perhaps ask this person, not how do you feel? Because that's a absolute no-no question by a journalist to a person who has suffered such a loss. But more of tell me how special this child was. When was the last time you actually spoke to this child and what was he or she saying to you? These are very sensitive questions and obviously I don't mean to probe. I know that if you had lost someone, the last thing you want to have is prying eyes of the media or shoving the camera up into your face. So I made sure that for one, I kept a very good distance from them. I only approached them when I felt it was a good time. And all this would be based on instinct. And finally, I also felt that if they didn't want to talk to me, I would just walk away. I would never press on or ask them repeatedly. I only spoke to the ones who wanted to speak to me. And many times, to be honest with you, they want to talk. A lot of them actually poured their hearts out. And one grandma even showed me his favorite toys. She brought a little musical keyboard. So all these are very poignant moments. It's so difficult to kind of hold back your emotions as well because it's not about you losing someone, it's them losing someone. But to be honest with you, it felt like I had lost someone as well. Oh, May, I'm struggling here. That's um, that's a really tough situation to be in. And I know as a journalist, too, when I was asked to knock on the doors of families who had lost people, I asked my editors, why do we have to do this? This seems so cruel. And they told me, this is giving a grieving family a platform to speak. And as you say, remember the person they've lost. And even though it's difficult, it, it's a very important part of our job. International media, they thronged the child care center to get this story. But in journalism, there are unspoken rules, right? There are certain lines that you do not cross. The CNN team, they were on the receiving end of vitriol for going into that building, which you had said it was cordoned off. It's an active crime scene. They went in, they filmed their report. Were there questions about ethics and what is appropriate when covering this story? Oh, obviously, the question of ethics always comes to mind. I think it's very unfortunate that that story seemed to have overshadowed the real story of the victims who were gunned down mercilessly by the shooter. So this story of the CNN team going into the childcare center should not even have been a headline, simply because the focus should have always been on the victims and also to remember the victims who are the real story here in this case. When you talk about ethics, journalists will always struggle to define what journalism ethics is, what integrity is, and how far do you want to go with it. For me personally, I will maintain a certain distance. I will not push a person if that person waved me away and doesn't want to talk to me. And obviously, there were moments that 
you felt as though, are you asking too much? Should you go on or should you cut short the interview because you've already gathered what you need? So there are certain lines that you don't cross here. And obviously, getting into the childcare center was never a question. It's not about exclusivity or it's not about getting special access into the area. Whether or not there was a cordon or whether or not there was no cordon, there's no business of a journalist to go inside because it was an active crime scene. And obviously, as you saw as well in that CNN report, blood was still on the floor. I mean, parents couldn't even go inside the childcare centre, much less a journalist. Now, a lot of these images as well that I have put out on social media, on television, some people have criticised to say, why are you showing the parents' faces? Why are you showing their emotions? But I think it is necessary to show their emotions. It's necessary to tell that story because it also gives them an outlet, a coping mechanism as well to deal with the grief that they're going through because they want to tell people how special that child was. They want to tell people how they're missing that particular child. Obviously, a lot of the grandparents, they were taking care of the kids because their children were working in a different province. I just want to point out, there was one moment that when they opened up the front gate of the childcare centre to allow the parents to go as close as the front door of the childcare centre, but not to go inside, but at the front door, they allowed the parents to lay down white roses. And I saw all the parents, their uncles and aunties, and their grandparents in particular, falling to their knees, crying, weeping uncontrollably. And one moment that really, really struck me was when they actually laid down the flower and I heard one parent cry out loudly, that means, come home, my child, come home. And that was extremely, extremely poignant because I think what they want is for the child's soul to come back they don't want a child's soul to be wandering outside and hence they're calling out to the child to say, come home now, my child, come home. So that was a very, very special moment and obviously it was very difficult to control the emotions. And that was just before I had to do a live report with you, I remember. <laughs> and it was hard. It was hard. I mean, I felt the lump in my throat and, you know, it was very, very difficult to try and kind of put up a face go in front of the camera and then tell the story without letting my emotions get the better of me. And yet another mother was clutching onto a blanket and a milk bottle that was half drunk. And so you can just tell that number one, that blanket was probably one that the child had been using, that the child had held on to when he or she was sleeping at night and that milk bottle as well was the one that he or she was using all the time. She just stood there weeping uncontrollably. I couldn't even bear to approach her because I felt that that was a private moment. And I didn't. I let her be because I think she needed the time to heal. In journalism, you always strive to cover the story and not be the story. Stay with us. Up next on CNA Correspondent, more with May Wong. The aftermath of the tragedy has already seen the government take action. But will it help? We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Stephen Chia, and I host the new season of our podcast, Heart of the Matter. Join me in getting right to the heart of the headlines as we speak with experts and newsmakers to delve deep into the most talked about news developments. Look out for our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. For more on this, let's bring in May Wong. She's standing by live in Nong Pua Lampu in Thailand. May, you are standing at the scene of the attack where these families of the victims are gathering at the moment. Tell us, what is it like? What is the atmosphere there like? Profound sadness and grief cannot even begin to describe the scene over here. This particular hall here, as you see, it's where all the families of the victims. Welcome back to CNA Correspondent. What you just heard there was a snippet of the live cross I did with you, May, uh, during a news bulletin the day after the killings. And I remember you saying that there was not a dry eye around when you spoke to people about these children, many of whom were actually being raised by grandparents. Indeed, many of them were raised by their grandparents. In fact, when they were at the command center, a lot of them were just filled with elderly people. And obviously, that's very telling because these were grandparents that raised this child from birth. And the grandmothers, the grandfathers were very, very close to the children. And obviously, a lot of the grandparents as well, when they finally managed to see the bodies, when the bodies were moved from the hospital to a temple, a lot of them broke down, a lot of them had to be helped out of the temple, and also many of them fainted. So you just imagine the kind of sorrow that they have to cope with, because this little baby that they helped to raise with their two hands, and now gone in just one fell swoop. And that's the reason why when you talk about the grandparents, it's just a very, very special moment. And there's one that I spoke to where you will now take a listen to. I took care of him since he was so young. I raised him with my own hands. He was close to the family, a very nice boy who has a beautiful smile, whoever saw him. Always loved him. The attacker was a 34-year-old former police sergeant. There was a divorce, financial pressures, and an unhappy relationship, a recipe for mental distress. And authorities initially blamed drugs, but an autopsy later found no trace of drugs in his system. So that makes people zero in on this man's mental health, May. Absolutely. It's not just about the mental health per se of such personnel, but it's also the entire structure in terms of the military, in terms of the law enforcement. We've seen stories before of hazings being done inside police force and also within the military. And there have been reports as well of abuses from superiors within the entire system. So you've got a system that is not exactly transparent. You've got a whole structure that is hierarchical. And then you've got this mental aspect of it, which is never really looked into for Southeast Asia as well as for Thailand. Mental health assessment is still a rather taboo subject. So within, for example, the law enforcement, within the military, it's not a systematic assessment that's being done on a regular basis. And also gun access by all these 
ex-military personnel or ex-police officers and current law enforcement officers, that is very much in question because they are available very easily to all these uniformed personnel. So obviously there are issues to be dealt with here, particularly in terms of having easy access to firearms, also mental health assessment. In addition to that, remember here in 2020 in Korat, there was also another mass shooting that went on that involved a military soldier who had access to weapons and he went on a shooting spree as well. At that time, the Thai government also said and promised that such an incident should never happen again and they would look into it. But obviously now, 2022, you've got two years, three years later, nothing has changed. And once again, the government has come out to say, yes, we are going to step up. And what the government is saying right now is they will include mental health assessments into people who are trying to get licensed for guns. And also they are going to look more thoroughly into whether or not the uniformed personnel needs to go through mental health checkups on a regular basis. And finally, also more restrictions that will be introduced in order to curb the free and easy access to weapons in this country. All of these have to be looked at in totality. And unfortunately, this issue is just so massive that it'll take a long time to overcome. And obviously, it will take a lot of gumption and political will to actually execute and bring about real actionable changes. May, from the victim's perspective, what sort of counseling is available there for families who are going to be living with this guilt and this grief for the rest of their lives? Well, immediately at the shooting site, they had set up centers where they had volunteer nurses, for example, and also healthcare professionals that were deployed even from Bangkok to go over to the shooting site to offer counseling services and also just to offer a listening ear for any of the parents as well as family members who just want to talk to a medical professional. And also a lot of the grandparents are feeling so guilt-ridden that some of them have actually talked about committing suicide. So this is a very, very serious case. And from what I understand as well, reports have shown that about 20% of the family members are suffering from severe cases of mental health conditions simply because they are really struggling to cope with this sudden grief that they've been put through. And so it's not an easy task. And obviously, the government has said it is a priority. So they have encouraged any of the family members or any of the public who feel as though they want to talk to somebody, who feel as though they've been affected by this, to call up hotlines as well. So there are hotlines that are available. There are healthcare professionals who are available in person or if they want to talk via video conferencing, the mental health department and the government has said that it will continue to do this as long as it's necessary. <laughs> That was Thai Prime Minister Prayut Chanocha. He was walking amongst a throng of family members at the site, patting some on the shoulder, embracing their necks, telling them how deeply sorry he is. The morning after this happened, I was in a cab coming to work, and the driver brought up this story, and he said, I saw the headline. I saw that it involved a mass killing with children, and I thought it must be the United States. And he was shocked to learn that it was in Thailand. How rare is something like this? 
It's rare because this involved such a large number of children. It's rare because you're talking about children as well. On an occasional basis, you hear a lot of guns being used in terms of one-on-one -on -one personal disputes in different provinces all across Thailand. So it's not an unusual scene, but it's never on such a mass scale that this really took the whole country's attention and also the global attention because for one, it involved more than 20 young, very young children. So obviously, having gun access, gun control policies are necessary. Thailand has had a gun control policy since 1947. And obviously, over the years, they have tried to curb all the gun access. And obviously, they have also tried to tell people that this shouldn't be the choice of weapon in terms of making use of guns to settle disputes. But also remember here that it's not just about settling one-on-one -on -one disputes between unhappy buyers and sellers, for example, but it's also about this willingness to use guns as a source of power to show the fact that I am mightier than others and I can actually do a lot of harm if I have a weapon in hand. May, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to you and your crew for covering this story with such compassion. Thanks, Teresa. It was hard to talk about it, but thank you for having me. The TV version of CNA Correspondent airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. You can also catch up with them whenever you like on cna.asia. Follow this podcast version that takes you behind the scenes with our correspondents so you'll know when a new episode is out. Our podcast team is made up of Daniel Lee, Crispina Robert, Clara Ong, and me, your host, Teresa Tang. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>